All right. Would you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter nine? We're going to look at verses four through 19. In 1986, there was a group of researchers who published a study of Japanese mothers and mothers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the mothers were asked to rank the most important need or qualification to succeed academically. Now, the mothers in Minneapolis, Minneapolis, man, I think it's that Benadryl. I was going to ask you all to pray for me. I feel like I have this stupor, this Benadryl stupor. So as we do pray, help Help me by praying for me. Now, the mothers in Minneapolis said, ability, that's the number one need for a child to succeed academically. That's what they need. The mothers in Japan said, effort. Isn't that interesting? One set of culture says we need to have ability. The other set, no, you just need to work hard. Interesting. Well, what does it take to succeed as a student of the Bible for a lifetime? In other words, if you're going to grow in your reading and your understanding and your interpreting and your applying and your theologizing and your teaching and ministering God's word for a lifetime, what does it what does it take to do that? What characteristics are needed? How do you become a great student of the Bible for the rest of your life? How do you become someone that's like an arrow in the Lord's hands? Someone who actually feeds and learns to discover the riches of the glories of Christ in the scripture for yourself, along with those whom the Lord entrusts to you to actually shepherd and come alongside and and those whom he calls you to to minister, maybe in official capacity as an officer in the church or even as a mother or a father. I mean, how? What is it? Well, Paul answers the question this way. He's writing to his top apprentice and his top apprentice was who? Kids, who is his top apprentice? Timothy. Thank you. Timothy. That's right. Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, think hard about these things. Think hard about them. Think hard over everything I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, the things I am talking to you about, the things I'm writing to you about, think hard about them. They're divine revelation, basically. Think hard about them, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so he gives us two great actions that need to be at work in order for you and me to be a student of the Bible for a lifetime. A good student of the Bible for a lifetime. The first is you need to think hard. It takes mental grit and sweat. It takes a hard listening to the text. It's tough heart work. In other words, what... A guy said, a theologian, a favorite theologian of mine, he said, listen, when you go to the Bible, you bring a shovel, not a rake. You don't just move things around on the surface. You dig. It takes mental thinking work. It takes mental work that begins to see God in the grammar. It takes mental work that sees God in run on sentences that Paul has all over the place. Ephesians chapter 1 is one long sentence. It takes work to track down the main verb in there. Have you tried it? You haven't? Here's your homework. 3 through 17, there's one verb. I dare you to find it. Come back next week and tell me if you know what it is. 
How about the complex syntax of Hebrews? It takes work, hard work to think through that stuff. It takes hard work to know the ancient Near Eastern culture and the background of Israel's history. It takes hard work. It takes hard work to see that God is in the setting and the characters and the storyline of First and Second Samuel. It takes hard work to do that. The other crucial action here, though, is the divine action. It takes God giving you understanding. You can think all you want. You can gather data all day. But you'll have no delight in the data if God doesn't give understanding. It takes a divine action to what the Puritans say, God shines on the page. He works in your thinking hard. He's working in the grammar. He's working in words. Words that we looked at like last week. How compelling and how revealing is God in one little word called covenant? Unpacking that is glories of God. As you study and think hard over these things, God gives understanding. He gives the spiritual light. He shines on the page. You begin to see the glories of what's already there. The Holy Spirit isn't bringing new meaning to the text. It's unfolding the meaning already in the text so that you see it. So you've got to have a conclusion. You've got to come to a conclusion. When you come to the Bible and you say, I don't get it, you've got one or two ways to go. You can say something's wrong with the Bible because I don't get it. Or you say something's wrong with me. I don't get it. Do you see the difference? The Holy Spirit gives you understanding. He helps you get it. Takes off the blinders. Helps you see otherworldly, heavenly realities shining on the page. But not only illumination in the mind, light as the Puritans called it, but heat in the heart. It actually warms you up. This morning, what are you counting on to be warmed up spiritually? Are you counting on a feeling? Are you counting on your emotions to work themselves up? Are you trying hard this morning? God alone gives heat. God alone gives it. So, it takes to read your Bible, understand your Bible, theologize about your Bible, interpret your Bible, teach your Bible, be a a minister of the Bible. It takes two actions. A human one, think hard. A divine one, God gives understanding. If you have The human action, without the divine one, you have data, no delight. If you have, quote, God-giving understanding, but you don't have the thinking hard, you don't have the mind part of it, you have what's called rabid fanaticism. Now, there's a word for you. The ancient folks used to say this way, rabid enthusiasts. All emotion, no truth. Zeal, no knowledge. Lots of feeling, lots of passion, grounded in nothing. In other words, you go one of two ways. You can either go a way of turning the book. If you're on the thinking hard, but you don't have God-giving understanding, you turn the Bible into a mechanical book of self-help spirituality. It's a lecture hall. It's 
a lab to be dissected. The other side, you take the Bible and you turn it into this mystical book of inward spiritual journeys. What do you hear? You're at the therapist's couch. Oh, how do I feel? Yeah, what's going on with me? I don't know. Or you're at the ball game and your team just scored the winning touchdown. It's neither. All right. Daniel 9 makes it so clear that it requires both of these. So fasten your seatbelts. Daniel chapter 9, 4 through 19. Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, I pray to the Lord, my God. Remember, that's Yahweh. This is covenant Lord. And made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, By walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. 11. All Israel has transgressed your law, turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse of the oath that was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there has not been done anything like which has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God or turned from our iniquities and gained insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has been brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, And have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. 17. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant. Listen to his pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear in here. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that has been called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your name's sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
Our Father, we thank You that You are the author of Your own Word. You are the uncaged lion in the Word. And Jesus, You are the lion of the tribe of Judah. Holy Spirit, You are the inspirer of the Word. And you, you worked and moved through men, through grammar, through lexical words, syntax, literature, poetry, story, history, culture, Paul's run-on sentences. We ask now that you would help us to think hard. And we plead that you would give us understanding. Shine the light of the glory of Christ into our hearts. Lord, I do ask that you would help me with whatever this stupor I feel. Pray that you would give freedom. Pray that you would speak to all of us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here's the plan. Last Sunday, the task was to do what? It was to convince you that in Daniel 9, there's a covenantal superstructure. A covenantal superstructure in chapter 9. I mean, the chapter begins with covenant, ends with covenant. It bookends. The word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, used eight times in the first seven verses. It's been missing in the whole book. It's, it showed up here. The point of the covenantal superstructure is to show you that it's not only the covenantal superstructure of Daniel 9, but it's the whole Bible. I mean, if you, you want to know what the Bible is, the Bible's DNA. The soil of all the scriptures is covenant. The story of creation to new creation, covenant. Everything is in a binding relationship with God. Everything. Everyone has a personal relationship with God. Everyone. The issue is what kind? What kind of binding relationship do we have? Do we have one that's inherently conditioned upon our performance and therefore we're bound to God right now in justice, in wrath? Or is He bound Himself to us in a relationship that's inherently gracious? A bond in blood, as we saw, right? All right, that is the the whole structure because covenant is like the stage that the divine drama of the scriptures plays out before us. And sometimes the stage shows itself and it gives you the little word and it says covenant. Other times, though, the stage is assumed, all the meanings there and the drama takes place because the covenant supports it. The covenant carries it. The covenant infuses it with light and glory. So when we do read our Bibles, we need to be careful and not be wooden literalists and only look for the word. The scriptures has authorial intent in many different ways. Not just because I want to see the word. The meanings everywhere. Okay. Now, the second thing why we took the time to do this was to show that covenant keeps Christ central in the Bible. So covenant keeps Jesus central and keeping Jesus central, it actually pushes in power and pushes in praise into you. 
If Jesus is central, and if he's kept central in the Bible, there is power in reading your Bible. There is praise that's pushed in as you interpret and theologize and come to understand and apply and teach the Bible correctly. There is that. And keeping Christ central in the Bible also pushes away the mechanical method on one side and the mystical method on the other. Covenant keeps Jesus in the central. He's neither of these. He's not mechanical and he's not the mystical. Alone. Okay. And then we looked at one application, and that was our time last week. Today, we've got two applications that are flowing from Daniel's covenant theology in chapter 9. So we need to get started. Let's get going. The first application is what we're going to start with right now. So the overall big idea, if you're trying to join us and trying to get an understanding, what's the big idea? The big idea of chapter 9 is a covenantal structure. It's a covenant. God is in a binding relationship with his people. And there are implications for that, which is what we're going to see right now. Now, when was the last time you were told you couldn't do something? I want you to think it right now. When was the last time you were told you couldn't do something? Children, you've got that. It was probably about five seconds ago. But adults, when was the last time you were told you couldn't do something? Did you like it? How many of you liked it? When was the last time you attempted to do something and couldn't do it? I mean, you wanted to do it. You attempted to do it. You couldn't do it. Did you like it? Last summer, we were on vacation in Colorado. And uh, Gary, who's an elder here, found a place for us, a nice log home snug in the middle of these mountains in beautiful Colorado. Uh, The first day we arrived, I told my wife, I'm going to go for a run out here. This is incredible. And so I was tying up my shoes and my wife said, now be careful. Remember, we're in the mountains. I said, yeah, uh uh I'll see you, sweetie. And I'm out the door. Now, the first part of the run, it was five minutes of rolling terrain and beautiful scenery, just invigorating. And then the road I was running on turned and started going up the mountain at a steep incline. And I thought to myself, that's no problem. I'll run 15 minutes up and then run 15 minutes back. I've run many a hill before. This is no big deal. Uh, A couple of bends in the road, I felt like I was trying to suck air through a toothpick. I was going to say a straw, but that's that's too much air. (laughs) A toothpick and burrow a hole through the toothpick. I mean, I'm looking around. My lungs and my legs are burning from lack of oxygen. And I looked at my watch and I couldn't believe it. Only five minutes went by. And defiantly, I said to myself, I am going to run 15 minutes up this mountain. And then I'll jog 15 back. Well, at the 10-minute mark, my eyes were so bloodshot, I actually, for the rest of the week, had a blood vessel broken in my eye. (laughs) My eyes are bloodshot. I cannot breathe. My legs are going in two opposite directions. (laughs) My head was hurting. My lungs were going to explode, and I had to stop. 
Now, those of you that know me, how much did I like that? I had to quit running. I came home. My family understands. I came home and that got into my soul. It bothered me all day. It bothered me two days. All day I kept telling my wife, I can't believe I quit. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I had to stop hunting with this big red, this big red broken blood vessel in my eye. And she's looking at me like, uh-huh, uh-huh. How much do you like being told you can't do something? How much do you like attempting to do something and not able to do it? Do you like it? When God says in the scriptures, you can't save yourself. When God says in the scriptures, you know, your heart, you can't change. When God says in the scriptures, do you know that you cannot please God? You can't obey God on the strength of your own goodness and on the strength of your own strength and on the strength of your own righteousness. You can't, the Bible says. When the Bible says that you have no goodness within yourself, no righteousness within yourself, that God says, oh, now I accept you. I'm glad you finally found it. When you think about your own goodness and your own righteousness, when the Bible says that you have none that commends yourself to God, none that says, now I like you, now I love you, now I'll make you mine forever. Now I'll hear your prayers. And now I'll keep you in the center of my will. I know you worry about that all the time. Well, now because of your innate goodness and your innate righteousness, I will. When you hear this, do you like that? Do you like being told that? Do you like hearing when your spouse points out your sin? Oh, thank you very much, honey. I really, really got a lot out of that conversation. Do you like hearing that? I mean, why do you get so defensive and angry? Why do you walk out of the room when that happens? You know why? Because you don't like hearing that you have no God-pleasing goodness in you. When you pretend you're better than you are around other Christians, when you're around other people and you, you try to act a little more spiritual and you try to put your best spiritual foot forward and you want to make sure that no one knows what you're really like on the inside because if you did, nobody would be talking to you right now. And the reason why you do that and I do that is because we don't like to hear that we have no God-pleasing goodness in us. When your inner thoughts say, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. Do you remember what that's like? Do you remember what it's like when you get that thrilling rush of superiority when someone sins or someone fails? Remember that rush you get? You get this thrilling rush like, oh, yeah. At someone's failure, someone's sin. The reason why we feel that, the reason why we get that, because deep down in our hearts, 
we don't like to hear we have no God-pleasing goodness within us. When you get deeply discouraged and down because of other people's view of you, you know, it's either real or imagined. You know what I mean? You, you know their view of you because they tell you. That's real. The imagined kind is you kind of walk around, oh, I wonder what they think of me. Oh, I think they think this of me. And their view of you, their acceptance of you is taken into your soul. It becomes your happiness. It becomes your good. It becomes your joy and your delight. You've got to have a good view in their eyes. It becomes your God. And you ever notice that you must have a good performance in order for you to look good or have the approval of somebody else? And do you know why the root cause of an approval addict like us is deep down in our heart, we do not want to hear that we have no God-pleasing goodness within us. And finally, do you like anything I just said in the past three or four minutes? Are you uncomfortable at what we just talked about? The reason is because you don't like to hear that you have no God-pleasing goodness within you. Why don't we like to hear we have no God-pleasing goodness within us? Why? This is our first application. The reason is this, because we tightly trust in our own goodness for life. We tightly trust in our own goodness for life with God. If I hang on to my own goodness, I tightly trust in my own goodness for life with God. I'll get happiness in God. I'll have forgiveness with God. I'll have life change with God. I'll have his pleasure on me. I'll have him liking me. I'll have him hearing my prayers. I'll have him answering me. I'll have him drawing near to me. If I tightly trust in my own goodness, this will happen. We tightly trust our own goodness for life with other people. We tightly trust for our own goodness and life and the way we interact with the world and having confidence in the world and our vocations and our callings. Maintaining our goodness means maintaining your life. If I maintain my goodness, I maintain my life. I maintain my happiness. I maintain my peace and my strength. I maintain all confidence in this world. If I lose it, it feels like death. I'm losing my happiness. I'm losing my peace. I'm losing my comfort. I'm losing my pleasure. I'm losing my good. I'm losing everything. Hearing that we have no goodness in us is like hearing death. And I just want you to see how powerful sin is. Because Jesus says the exact opposite. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, no, 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 no. You got it backwards. If you try to hold on to your life, you lose it. If you hate your life, holding on to your own goodness, you find it. And sin takes it and twists it and it says life is really death. And death is really life. Do you see how powerful sin is? 
in all of us. This is what we do. Now, Israel did not like to hear that they had no God-pleasing goodness in them either. So we're all in good company. I mean, we have 800 some odd years of Israelite history from the from the exodus to the exile. We've got this 800 years of constant display and illustration that they didn't like to hear that they had no goodness in them either. Just like us. In fact, we go and we look at verse five. Let's show that this is the case. Look at verse five. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And there we see the basis of this national law-keeping covenant that God had with Israel. Now, remember, you have to think hard on these passages because some of you are thinking to yourself, and I, I'm hearing my wife, Jeff, don't go, don't go too technical and detailed. All right, I'm not, but I've got to say something. There is a covenant of grace that extends from 315 to whenever the last person ends. This covenant of grace is established by Christ as the mediator. This covenant has an unfolding, progressive unfolding throughout history like a story. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. You have a... Uh, a seed covenant, you have a noetic covenant, you have a covenant with Abraham, you have a covenant with Moses, David. All one covenant of grace. But the administration, the form with Moses, though grace is the substance, it comes in the form of law. Interesting. So those of you that are wondering, what in the world? You need to come to the class next fall or next spring. Okay? I don't have time to get into the details. Now, notice that Daniel's prayer, if you look at 5, there's this covenant. God keeps covenant. But in 5, Daniel is saying, we've sinned. God, you keep covenant. We don't. You're faithful. We're not. We have sinned and we've done wrong and we've acted wickedly and we've rebelled and we've turned aside from your commandments and rules. How many ways can he say it? Well, then he spends 14 more verses saying it over and over and over again. We have shame. We have sinned. We have not kept covenant. We have not obeyed you. We have not listened to the voice of your prophets. And every single one of us, our kings haven't. Our prophets even haven't. Our priests haven't. Your people surely haven't. All people in all levels of all Israel. And then you get to verse 11 and it sounds so much like Paul. All have, oh, all Israel has sinned and fallen short. And Daniel's prayer is a public, visible indictment of Israel's complete covenantal failure. Eight hundred years. Oh, wait a minute, Jeff. I, I, I saw some highlights in there. Yeah, that's because the covenant of grace preceded it. Thank the Lord. There was a remnant. But on a national scale, they failed. But Jeff, how do you know that? How do you know that they're not in the land? The essence of the covenant was do this, people, and you stay in the land. They didn't do this, and that's why they're in exile. So when you get back to, well, wait a minute. Well, let's just take a little history course. We go right back to and you hear these words. Take us back to Egypt. Moses. 
they were two miles into their walk out of the Exodus, two miles into being saved by grace, two miles into their jaunt out of prison, out of slavery, two miles into it. Moses, take us back. Now, once they see God part the sea, actually deliver them from their enemies, see the waters cover and judge the enemies of God. Now they're going to the promised land. You would think they would know and trust who God is for them. And they're not into this and they're wondering, are we going to starve to death out here? I mean, you bring us out here and our children are going to die. You know what? I'm I'm tired of the manna. And the quail. We have something else. Maybe a little ham. And then we get to the golden calf. Remember the golden calf? Where's Moses? Moses, the mediator, is up getting the law from God Himself. And then you have the golden calf taking place. After the golden calf you have, we're getting ready to go into the land and we send out 12 spies that were meant to show them, yeah, everything God said is true. And I promise to give it to you. Twelve come back. All see giants. Two say, yeah, there are giants there. But God gave us the land. Ten say, there are giants And we're grasshoppers. And all of Israel says, take us back to Egypt again. Then you get by that and you think, okay, well, they're going to wander for a while and they finally are going to get into the promised land. Then you have seven cycles and judges of apostasy. God mercifully sending a deliverer. They're recovered. Then apostasy again. Seven times. Then after the seven cycles, you finally get to the king. But what they want, they they lust after their own kind of king instead of lusting after God's kind of king. After David, you have a hit and miss of faithful kings on a list. Well, if you memorized them, oh, good, bad, 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 good. Is he really good, though? Adultery, murder. You go through the list of kings and then you have the kingdom divided. Because the kings were so bad. Because they were now supposed to represent God, the people before God. Then after the kings, you have the northern kingdom slipping so low that God finally says, you're out of the land. Assyria, come. Judah, follow suit. They sink so low. Finally, Babylonians come. You're out of the land. Failure, failure, failure. Then you get to verse 6. I want you to see this. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers and to all the people of the land. Do you you catch that? In other words, even though Israel had no God pleasing goodness within them, they didn't like to be told so. The prophets would come because they're like covenant prosecutors and they went before the princes and the kings and all levels of society and they laid before them all the evidence of their unfaithfulness and all the evidence that they have no God-pleasing goodness in them, poured it out on the table and they said, we're not listening to you. We refuse to listen to you. I can't stand that message is what Israel said. We don't want to hear that. We don't like that. And the question is, why? Because their trust was tightly clinging for life, 
for good, for happiness, for everything they think life should be, they clung to their own goodness. And so do we. So, brothers and sisters, how do you break the hold of your tight clinging to your own goodness for life before God, for life with each other, for life with the world? The answer is, you can't. Man, you've got to stop running. You've got to suck air through a toothpick. You've got to feel your legs going in two different directions. You've got to feel blood in your eyes. And you've got to quit. And how many like to hear that? I don't. So I'll be the first. I'm the pastor. And I will say, I don't like to hear that. Because I want to do it. I want good in me. I want to control my relationship with God. I want to know when I wake up, He's happy with me. I want to know when I go through my day that I'm content and I'm satisfied and I'm strong to face whatever comes to me today. And when I'm in a relational conflict, I want to be able to say, I don't care if you're upset with me because I've got my act together. Pal. Friend. Right? And so do you. Now, I want you to notice something. Is who is, in this passage, who is standing in the gap between Israel and God in this prayer in Daniel 9? Who is standing in the gap and prays to secure Israel's return not only to a physical land, but to spiritual reviving? Who is? I mean, who prays and God says, verse 23, let's look at verse 23. He prays in verse 23, we get at the beginning of your pleas for mercy. Gabriel's telling Daniel at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I've come to tell you for your greatly loved. Do you get the picture? The picture is Daniel's praying. God says, shh, cherubim, knock it off. Daniel's praying. I want to hear it. Answer it right now, Gabriel. Tell him I'm on my way. Soon as Daniel prays, heaven is silenced and God says, go. Answer him. Why? Well, look at verse 23. For you are greatly loved. Now, I've told you at the beginning of the series of Daniel 9 that we must be careful to distinguish in which direction a character points, especially prophets, priests and kings. In other words, we've told and we've talked about that a character in the Bible and even major events, particularly in the Old Testament, major actions and ideas that you need to be careful. You've got to think hard here. You need to be careful not to take the character and make him point in the direction he's not pointing to. Now, he can point to you and me as a fellow fallen worshiper, but he also can point to someone that's greater than himself. And the question is, what is Daniel doing here? 
Which direction is he pointing? Is he pointing to you and me? Or is he pointing to someone greater? Well, to answer that question, we've got to partially answer it by just looking at a quick portrayal of Daniel throughout the book. In Daniel 1, Daniel has no blemish in him. Did you catch that? Remember in Daniel 1? Remember? Just that little phrase, the king chose those without any physical defect. Without defect in body, without defect in wisdom, without defect in conduct, without defect in character, without defect in their communication before the king, without defect. Chapter 2, we get Daniel having heroic wisdom. Remember, you've got all the, the Babylonian wisdom hunters, high and low. Oh, who can interpret this prayer? This wisdom, this vision that you've had, king. Who can interpret it? And then the heroic wise one comes in and says, I can. And gives revelation from God. Do we do that? You get to Daniel chapter 4 and you got Daniel has heroic mercy. Remember, he pleads with Nebuchadnezzar. He pleads with him. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, please repent. Please look up. Please not only look up for your sake and, and may God have mercy on you, but look out and look at the people that are weak and oppressed in your kingdom. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, repent of your evil and your unrighteousness towards not only God, but towards them. We find this man who has heroic mercy. Then we get to chapter 5 and we find a man who has heroic faith. Remember the writing on the wall. We have this wicked king, not like Nebuchadnezzar. He never looks up. He only looks in and he only thinks of himself. And who stands before him and tells him the news of judgment with the handwriting on the wall? A heroic man with heroic faith. Daniel. Then you get to Jan Daniel chapter 6. And you find that Daniel has this heroic righteousness. Remember? Remember what the guys are trying to do? They are trying to find fault with him. And the only fault they could find in him was the fault of his righteousness before God. Everywhere Daniel shows up in this Bible of chapter 9 or chapter 7 or chapter 6 or 5 or 4, he's always righteous. Always. And then you have this Daniel representing, standing in the gap on behalf of Israel before God, this righteous one. And God says, shh, let me hear him. And he intercedes and he prays and God has mercy. Because of this righteous one. Daniel is everything Israel is not. Without blemish. All wise. All merciful. All faithful. All righteous. Daniel does what Israel is supposed to do when they're in the exile. Remember when Solomon was dedicating the temple? He even told the people, he says, your sin's going to get so great that you're going to be carried away. But when you do, if you humble yourself and pray to God for mercy, he'll deliver you. Well, who's doing that for Israel right now? Daniel. 
He's actually doing what Israel was supposed to do. Then you got Daniel interceding. He's praying for mercy for Israel. And now comes the question to break your tight trust in your own goodness. In order to do that, you need a greater Daniel. You can't break your tight trust in your own goodness because you're convinced it's life. Jesus says, no, it's death. You fight for it. You hang on to it in the midst of conflict and defending yourself in the midst of what other people think and vain imaginations. I wonder what they think of me. We're constantly clinging and hanging on to our, our own goodness within us. Who can break that? You can't, is what the Scripture says. You need a greater Daniel. You need someone who is everything you're not. You need someone who does everything you don't do. You need someone who's righteous on your behalf. You need someone to represent you before God. You need someone who not only prays for you, and every time he prays for you, God answers his prayers. But not only that, but that who is himself the answer prayer. The answered prayer. You need someone who loves you so deeply and so personally that he lived a perfect life for you. And he died a punishing death for your sin. And he rose from the dead for you. You need someone like Daniel, but greater. And you know what? We don't even have to leave chapter 9 to find him. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. And there he is, even in Daniel, right there for us. Now we're saying, well, what does all that other stuff mean? Well, guess what? That's for next week. That's our fun time. We get to tackle the 70 weeks next week. I'm really looking forward to that. Here's the second application. The first application is this. We don't like to hear the news that we have no goodness within us. We don't like to hear it because we tightly trust in our own goodness for life. For life with God, for life with each other, for life with the world. That's the first application. The second is this. The only way that that trust gets broken is through a greater Daniel. Turn to the greater Daniel to break your ironclad trust in your own goodness. And that means for some of you right now, it's finally realizing what being a Christian is all about. It's finally realizing that it's about trusting Jesus, that it's about Jesus' doing and his dying, not about you. It means realizing it's about Jesus and all that he is and all that he is for you. And it's not about your feelings. It's not about your interpretations of reality. It's not about how spiritual you are. It's not how many times you can yield yourself or surrender yourself. It's not about how many times you open the door to your heart to Jesus. That it's always and only about him. And trusting him, trusting in his doing, trusting in his dying, trusting in his rising. And the bond breaks. And for others of us who are Christians, it's waking up from that self-induced coma of trusting in our own goodness. You know what that coma looks like? You know what it looks like. I've got it. 
You're, you're exhilarated when you're doing well, and you're deeply discouraged when you're not doing well. And this coma goes like this all the time, throughout your day. Exhilarated, depressed. Depressed, exhilarated. That's what we do. And Jesus, the greater Daniel, breaks it in real time. In this way, you don't have to get God's blessing. You've got it. You've got it. It's already yours. You don't have to try harder. You need to trust more in what he's done for you. It's not trying harder. It's realizing it's trusting in what he's done for you. You don't have to fear anymore because you don't have to fear losing his love, losing his acceptance. You who do know him, you rest in Jesus and you feel freedom and you feel the joy that Jesus has accomplished this for you, that you have a right relationship with God, that he does love you. He doesn't love you any more or any less, no matter what you're doing. Because he's loving his son and loving you because of what his son has done. And when you're in the midst of tightly trusting your own goodness for life and you know you're in the midst of it because you can hear yourself argue, fighting, you can hear yourself defending yourself in conversations, you can see your pride and your lack of confession and your humility as you deal with people, you can see it, you see it, you hear your words, you can see your facial expressions, turn to Jesus right in the midst of it. Let his righteousness begin to humble you. Let his righteousness, as you turn to Jesus in the midst of your hanging on to your own goodness, you turn to Jesus, his righteousness humbles you because you realize you have none. And you live by every drop of his righteousness alone. That humbles you. But not only humbles you, it helps you. Because you have it. You have his righteousness. So when you pray, God says, shh, heaven, shh, 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 shh. Susie's praying. Uh-huh, uh-huh, done, great. He's all for you. Because you have it. So brothers and sisters, while we're in the midst of holding on, or if you are realizing that you are holding on and that's all you've been doing and your grip has never been pried off your own goodness. For the first time, it's time to turn to the greater Daniel. And for those of us that have been going through a Christianity that we've been in the stupor, exhilaration, despair, it's time. And for those of us that are knowing that you live with yourself, living with and dwelling sin every day of your life, and you feel and know those moments when you're clinging to your own goodness, it's time. It's time to turn to the greater Daniel and trust him as he breaks that stubborn alliance that you and I have with our own goodness for life. Amen.